0: Our Father, we do find in your word this precious gift that you have spoken to us. You reveal yourself to us in creation and with creation and in harmony with all that we see with our eyes. You have revealed to us your character, your glory, your commandments, and ultimately Christ in your written word. And in that, given us everything that is necessary for life and for godliness to know you, to walk with you, to hope in you to find encouragement, comfort, instruction, rebuke, correction, training, that we may be adequate to grow in and demonstrate righteousness. And so as we open your word together this morning, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would make evident your office to us in being our teacher and being the one who illuminates to us the word of God and through whom we hear the voice of Christ our Lord these written words and so this we pray for your glory and in the name of jesus amen open up your bibles if you will to ecclesiastes chapter 4 ecclesiastes chapter 4 we're going to finish what we began uh, last week in ecclesiastes chapter 4 as we walk through this great old testament book and introduce uh, our passage this morning. We were we intended to look at the whole passage last week. We ended up stopping at uh, verse six. We'll finish the rest of it um, uh, this morning. But let me introduce it in this way: that some ideas sometimes are so common to us and so a part of our culture, which we imbibe a lot more than we actually think that we do, uh, that we rarely take time to examine some of our attitudes in the light of Scripture and in light of the gospel and in light of Christ. And as being Americans, one of those cultural things that we imbibe, a lot of times without thinking, is this idea of this rugged individualism, you know, the self-made man, the pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, that kind of sense that it's me against the world and and I can do it. And with that, to think, as is common not only to our culture, certainly, because Solomon illustrates this himself, in the book of Ecclesiastes, but this idea that somehow there is this great satisfaction, there is this great uh, meaning to be found in success. And we can define success in a variety of ways, but success by what we attain, what we achieve, what we accomplish. However, this is not the mindset of Scripture, and it's not the mindset of Scripture, I would note, because it's not the design of reality. That's not the God who created the world didn't set it up like that, that any of those things would be, like, success would be the ultimate place of meaning, or that we were meant to go it alone. No, there is deeper truths that are to govern the things that our souls long for, namely fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. And the testimony of this is by the mere fact that there's so many successful people that are so miserable, that are so unhappy, that are so discontent, that are so unsatisfied. In scripture, there's many examples we can look at, but one of those would be the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, he had everything. He was intelligent, he was successful, he was respected, and yet he was empty. And he came to Jesus that way, and not submitting to Christ, he left that way probably even more so, because he did not find what he was looking for in the only place that he could find it. And he knew that, but was unwilling to let go of all that he possessed in this world. And as his Too often the case, as I mentioned, we have some of these ideas ingrained into our own souls and into our own way of thinking. And therefore, culture can end up wielding a greater influence on us, even as Christians, than we think. And therefore, if it does on us, it does on the church. And the church adopts in many ways and takes on some of these ideas of culture. And again, there's many examples we could give of this. Uh, but one is this, is the idea that salvation is primarily, almost exclusively, a matter of just us and the Lord. It's a kind of Christian individualism. Now, indeed, that is true at one level. As a matter of fact, the very essence of saving faith is when the truths of the gospel go from general truths that we acknowledge, for those of us who they are personalized. They understand not that I am a part of a group that is sinners, but that I myself have sinned, and I myself have grace, and I myself uh, I mean, have corruption and sin that I need forgiveness from. It is when we personally appropriate the gospel, and we understand the truth of it, we are convicted by our sin and the, the promise of grace in Christ, and then we are moved to repent and turn and to trust in him. So that is a very individual act, and certainly that is... Uh, the essence of the gospel and are are believing the gospel and yet when we are saved that's not the end of it we are saved into a community of people we are saved into the body of christ and we as americans particularly have a hard time grasping that Uh, again in many ways because of our culture this idea of being an individual and that is the sum total of my whole identity and how i view life and so Solomon's going to confront that. All of scripture confronts that, but particularly this morning, particularly this morning, and reminding us that there is, and as as an essential part of our, not only being Christians, he he would not have uh, understood it in terms of a Christian, but being a part of the community of God's people, that we are just that, a part of a covenant community. It's in part of our humanity, but especially so those who name and belong to Christ, that we are Not simply to go through life alone, but we are to go through life in fellowship with God and with his people as the greatest and the highest end of our joy, and it's where we find meaning. So Solomon is going to, as he does in many ways, confront those attitudes that we can adopt uh, from this world that are a pseudo-source of satisfaction. And this morning he confronts the evil of selfish ambition, And particularly he does that in the context of the kind of selfish ambition and individualism that is behind and the source of and the motivation for so much oppression and injustice uh, that we see in the world. But of course, as always too, he shows us these realities not to leave us there, but to lead us to God himself. And particularly for us, this side of the cross, to lead us to a greater understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. So the theme here of this, of chapter 4, is this. That righteous contentment and true community are the only antidote to oppression and the vanity of power and to true joy. Read with me the the chapter for context and then we'll swing back around and look at it more closely. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, Solomon says, Then I looked... At all of the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had none, no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. And then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity and it is a grievous task. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one cannot overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor... Yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, and though he was born poor in his kingdom, even though he was born poor in his kingdom, I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. This too is vanity and striving. After the wind. The theme here that Solomon is addressing is introduced in 4, as we noted last week, that the idea of injustice that was introduced in verse 16 of chapter 3 in the specific context of the law courts, of injustice in the one place that we would expect to find it, is now expanded to the idea of oppression that affects all of humanity. It's more generally here the idea of oppression. And so the first point that we looked at is namely that the oppression brings misery. It's a part of this world. There is suffering in this world. The weak are overpowered by the strong with no one to help them and no one to comfort them. It is something that is a part of this fallen creation and it is a grieving task, grievous reality. And then Solomon, though, with that idea, addresses how... This oppression not only is experienced, but how it is confronted. And he spends the remainder of the chapter there. And so we look, secondly, then at that righteous contentment opposes or is an antidote to oppression. Righteous contentment. And we looked at that in verses 4. He says, I have seen that labor and every skill which is done is rivalry between a man and his neighbor. In other words, so much of the oppression that happens, so much of the kind of dog-eat-dog world that we experience is because so much of the drive for success is fueled not by the glory of God and the good of humanity, but it's so often fueled by selfish ambition is fueled by greed the desire to succeed not merely because of the good it can do for others but because how it places me over another how it puts me in a place of superiority a place of power as it were over another that's not in every case of course and everyone is successful but he's saying it is a common reality the answer to that is contentment is contentment to live and pursue and be diligent not out of rivalry and not out of envy, but rather to love our neighbor rather than to have wield power over them. And then he mentions another part of that to the opposite reaction in verse 5 is then to be lazy, is to say, well, if that's the world it is, if it's a dog-eat-dog kind of world, then I'll just kind of extract myself from that altogether and and just uh, take myself out of it altogether. And he says, well, laziness is just as much of a sin and it doesn't bring any greater contentment. Better it is, in verse 6, to learn contentment and to know the balance between labor and rest. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. If we could be content and know that and be motivated by not what merely will be a means of us exercising power over others, but rather to be a means of providing for ourselves providing for others and living under the sovereign hand of God. But then he takes it in a different direction, and this is the third point, that righteous community destroys oppression. He first deals with the idea of contentment, and now he's going to look at the reality of community, and particularly in verses 7 and 8, uh, and introduce that in verses 7 through 8. And here it is this, in, in explaining how community destroys oppression, he exposes the foolishness of individualism. That's really the idea here. I looked again, notice that's a common theme throughout Ecclesiastes, he's simply observing the world around him and coming to conclusions. That's how wisdom works. I looked again at vanity under the sun, and he says, there was a certain man without a dependent, or you could say without a second, having neither a son nor a brother, and yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. He was a man driven by success and the desire to achieve, so much so, and here is the point, that he disregarded other relationships to attain his goal. That's the idea. In spite of all of his sacrifice to gain, and in fact he did gain. When he was left alone with himself, when he was left alone with an honest evaluation of his life, of his own soul, he could only acknowledge that he was still not satisfied. Look at what he says. His eyes were not satisfied with riches, with the very thing that he was pursuing. In other words, he was discontent. He realized the emptiness of it all. And as he reviews his life, he is a person who never took the time then to think more deeply about what is the point of all of this. What is the point of all of my effort? What is the point of my sacrifice? What is the the point of my denying myself pleasure? This is the one who never took the time to ask that, who never considered the fleeting nature of his life and what were the more important and profound principles that were driving him. And so what does he say? Solomon says he never asked himself, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? So in the end, we are left with a wealthy, successful Miserable person who's empty, who's empty, a great big empty castle, empty of any real meaning, any real joy. And so he says, This too, at the end of verse 8, is vanity and is a grievous task. Again, this is the individual who was so consumed with success, he had no time for anyone else, no time to invest in relationship, to invest in community or to consider the benefit of his labor outside of what it would bring to him in the context of personal gain. I thought of, uh, in that, that the character of Scrooge, you remember in The Christmas Carol. And so I went back and saw, and Charles Dickens describes him as this way early on in the first chapter, actually. He says, oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge, a squeezing Wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out a generous fire. Secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek and stiffened his gait. Made his eyes red and his thin lips blue and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rime was on his head, and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin, he carried his own low temperature always about him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. There's the picture of Scrooge. It's the picture of this man in Solomon in verse 8, who was so focused on success, he gave no time for others. It's a sad picture, A bit exaggerated to be sure, but it is a sad picture that captures the inner reality of many who find themselves at some measure in this condition. Such a cold desire for wealth, again matched with an individualism that disdains sacrifice and relationship. It made Scrooge, who is a picture here, unconcerned about the plight of others. And therefore it is this kind of individualism in the context of Solomon that is a fuel for oppression for using and abusing others for their own personal gain and not really caring at the cost that it brings to humanity. Greed and isolation, in other words, feed oppression and misery. And there is a sense then in which the false promise of wealth, success, or power as the means to meaning is like, here's another illustration. It's like a monkey trap. Uh, Have you ever heard of a monkey trap? uh, A monkey trap, okay, okay, Michaela's nodding her head, A monkey trap is they use it over in Africa. They they might use it somewhere else, but uh, that's the YouTube video I watch anyway. But anyway, a monkey trap is this. This is how they catch a monkey. They take a banana or something that a monkey will want, and they put it in a hole. And this hole is just small enough for the monkey to reach his hand through, but it's not large enough for him to pull it back out holding on to the banana. And so that's how they catch them. Why? Because they won't let go of the banana. They stick their hand in and then they, you know, they jump around. uh, And then, you know, they come and they fall on the monkey and, you know, there's dinner. So, but the point is, is that the monkey could easily escape the trap. All he has to do is let go of the banana, right? And there's a sense in which that illustrates well this kind of drive, this always pursuing something that actually is going to lead to our destruction and our misery, but we hold such a tight grip on it foolishly, foolishly. And here is this one, thinking that this is what it meant to live, this is what it meant to be alive, this is what it meant to be successful, that it was worth whatever sacrifice he made, but in the end, again, we're reminded, was it really? Was it really? Uh, One said this, uh, even though the fool's paradise here that uh, this envy, excuse me, envy, uh, though the fool's paradise here has hell at the end of it. By contrast, and this is the point, a believer is content with what the Lord provides. So in contrast to this kind of cold, selfish pursuit, and here he leaves no corresponding or balancing kind of promise, he's going to address that in the next section. But here he simply lays out the contrast to say that the cold, selfish pursuits of individualism, the drive for success that considers real relationship and sacrifice a burden to joy rather than a central part of it, is corrected by community. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time. Look at verse 9. Uh, verses 9 through 12 he says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor for if either of them falls the one will lift up his companion but what are the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up furthermore if two lie down together they keep warm but how can one be warm alone and if one can overpower him who is alone two can resist him a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart and here's how it's connected I've already mentioned this But the one, the man in seven and eight, who is, again, in the larger context, the one who fuels the kind of oppression that brings misery to humanity, is driven by a sense of individualism. The corrective is this, that we are called to live in community, in relationship, and with friends. That is the antidote. The key idea is this, that the blessing and need of community and companionship is the way that we would combat oppression and the true way that we would pursue our own joy and have a sense of meaning. Community and relationship and the importance of relationship is an antidote to the attitude that oppresses and the selfish hollowness that promotes injustice. You know, I wanted to take, I was actually in one sense kind of glad we didn't finish this last week because this was worthy enough to not just rush through, although in one sense, we're still going to rush through it more than I, we'd want to, but, or I would want to, but uh, to take a little bit more time because this, this captures for us a very essential truth, a very important truth for us. And really, if we could, if we could step back and say, what is the, the larger picture here in terms of the things that he describes? And it is this. It is an emphasis. It is a defense of the need and the importance of biblical friendship biblical friendship, spiritual friendship, spiritual friendship that takes place within the community of God's people. So he's going to begin by listing out for us simply four ways that it is an advantage to have a companion and not to go at it alone. Four ways. And let's just look at those briefly at first and give. And so I'll mention what he mentions here in terms of very practical concerns and how this can carry over even into our spiritual relationships. First of all, he says two are better than one. Why? Because they have a good return for their labor. In other words, when we work together, we can accomplish more. The labor of two is greater than the labor of one. We can double our efforts. We can double what we can accomplish together rather than by himself. We see examples of this in the Lord who sent out disciples two by two. We see examples of this in the ministry of Paul. He always had companions with him. First Barnabas, then Silas, and then the one that was near and dear to his own heart, Timothy. He was better with others than he was by himself. Secondly, in verse 10, it says, Because when we have someone else, there's help in our weakness. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But what are the one who falls when there is another to lift him up? When he is in trouble, when he is in need, when he is in a time of weakness, we need a companion to come along and to help us. Paul says that we bear one another's burdens and we meet one another's needs, John says. Thirdly, he says this in verse 11, when we are in real need, when we are in need of another, here he gives the example of the two lie down together, they keep warm. but how can one be warm alone? And let me just make a comment here, if, if some of us in our myself at first, uh, our western culture, read that, there's there's two things some look at this in terms of it, it's marriage it's a spouse, uh, there's no idea to think of two spouses, I mean it's true uh, but nonetheless, that's not what he's emphasizing here and so others think, well then that sounds you know, where two guys laying down together keeping each other warm and two girls, but in most cultures, particularly in there in eastern cultures, that kind of closeness and physical closeness among the same gender is not uncommon, it's not a It doesn't have any overtones of homosexuality or anything like that. He's merely saying this, that two who find themselves alone can find with each other a sense of warmth against the cold. They can be a help to one another, even in such a basic need as that. And in verse 12, a companion helps us when we are in trouble. Uh, If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him, and a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. The idea is here, if you have somebody threatening you, it'd be better to have a friend with you. It's pretty simple, rather than being alone. We can apply this out, not only, particularly not only here, the idea is being physically overpowered, but we understand this even in the sense of being overpowered with grief or being overpowered by temptation or whatever. When we have two together living in fellowship with one another, we are a help to one another, even in the spiritual battle against life. Then he says a cord of three is not quickly torn apart now this has been spiritualized in a variety of ways let me give you some of the most common it's spiritualized to mean this is a husband and wife in other words you have a husband and a wife and then you have Christ who is the third cord who brings them together many uh, wedding sermons uh, have been based on this text uh, another way that it's commonly uh, taken here is that it is, if you were to go to old uh, Jewish rabbis and some of their writings, that it's the knowledge of the Scripture and Mishnah, which is commentary on uh, Scripture, uh, basically writing down of the oral law, that it's, uh, it's those things together which, and right conduct, the Scripture the Mishnah and right conduct, that's uh, the strong strand of righteousness. And some have even seen here the Trinity, which is a little bit of a stretch, uh, particularly to see that. In Solomon. Well, while its meaning may be applied to some of these, that's not the meaning of the text. What does he mean when he says a cord of three strands, or a cord of three, literally, is not torn apart? He simply means this. You ready? There's greater strength in numbers. That's the point. If two can resist, how much better three? If two can produce more, how much better three? It's just the idea of numbers. In other words... The more we add, the better. The more we add, the better. The better, the safer we are. The more strength we find in weakness. The more success we find in our efforts. That we are a part of community and we should not neglect relationship. We weren't meant to live apart from one another. Now, as I noted then, this is often used in the context of marriage. And even those commentating on this who don't, who, who clearly see marriage is not the main idea, nonetheless, pull that up and rightfully so i would say of a good illustration and that is however as we understand how we interpret scripture that is not the meaning of the passage but it is a way the passage can be applied to relationships in life and so it is here and so it is here we can remember those words of the lord in genesis 2 8 it is not good for man to be alone and so i will bring him a helper And what's interesting here is before there were any other friends and before there were any other companions in the world, God met that ultimate need of companionship for the man in a woman, in his wife. And anyone who knows the reality of a good marriage knows the blessing of such a union and such companionship and such support. In a good marriage, our spouse is our closest friend, our closest confidant, our closest companion, the one in whom we desire to be with more than anyone else. Of all relationships outside of friendship, marriage is then, by God's design, the very pinnacle of oneness and friendship and union and companionship. And, even as the question was answered by God bringing Adam a wife, uh, an answer to that greatest need of humanity, which is to have another, to have a helper. But it's not limited, of course, to marriage. The real essence here is the idea of relationship and the idea of friendship. We were not meant to be solitary creatures. We just weren't meant to to go it alone, and that's the idea. Made in the image of God, we were made to be in relationship with other people in the variety of ways that those relationships work themselves out. Marriage, friendships, and etc., neighbors, and a variety of levels of intimacy— It's a reflection of God's image in us, even that language of Genesis chapter 2. This is theology lesson. God is unity. He is one God, and yet he consists of three persons. He's Father and Son and Holy Spirit. God lives within community with himself. That's reflected in the fact that we bear his image, and we live in community with others, with God himself, and with others who bear that image as well. You know, this is cheapened in our culture. In many ways, we've kind of lost that idea of deep, intimate friendships. It's kind of a strange thing to a lot of us, and particularly uh, the younger culture and the younger generation. Social media, which has as it, what it touts as the great thing it brings, is closeness and friendship, and yet that's the one thing it seeks to destroy, really, in many cases, ultimately. Where the concepts of friend, which is a noun as you're well aware, has been made a verb. You can friend to someone. It's something that you do them. There's connections that, are entitled, that, that, that take on this term and this title of friend between people who have never met any other. You say, oh, I don't know them. No, but we're friends on Facebook. We're friends on such other. Do you know anything about them? Have you shared a meal with them? Have you had a conversation? Have you prayed with them? Do you know anything about their life outside of what they choose to post and present online? But unfortunately, that is how many friendships, that's the sum total of many friendships of this culture, and it's a great loss indeed for the individual and for us as a community. And in many cases, the idea of a friend in those senses has little more to do than a sense of bringing a personal, val- personal validation to the person who's friended. How many friends do you have who liked my post, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. It certainly isn't the idea of friend and what I give up and what I give of myself to another. The friend is totally reversed and it becomes, in that context, in that world, what somebody else brings and gives to me for myself without any cost to myself. But that's not what friendship is and companionship is in the Bible. It is a profound gift and design of the Lord that he himself calls us friends in John 15. We'll come back to that later. There's an example of God demonstrating this kind of intimacy in the language of friendship, even with his own. In the Old Testament, and Solomon would have been aware of this, when God personally met with Moses, you'll remember that Moses went out to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp, and he met with God face to face, and there he had these conversations with God. That's what made his face glow uh, at one point. But he describes it this way. He says, thus the Lord, in Exodus thirty-three, eleven, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks with his friend. With a friend. God brought Moses, in that sense, into the most intimate personal relationship as a close companion and as a friend. Uh, Abraham is described that way as a friend of God. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, 8 says this, it's repeated in James chapter 2, but in 41 8 it says this, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, my friend. What a precious thing to be called the friend of God, and what an exalted and profound meaning it gives to that kind of relationship, to friendship, to intimacy, to one who knows us well. We see examples of this in scripture, many of them. One that most of us would think through or go to at first is between David and Jonathan. They knew a deep friendship. They were an example of this in a a wonderful way. It says in 1 Samuel 18, 1, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself. That's the epitome of human friendship. He loved him as himself. David echoed the same sentiment of his friend Jonathan when he learned of his death in 2 Samuel 1. It says this, he he gave a lament. Uh, Saul had died, Jonathan had died, and speaking of Jonathan, he says this, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love for me was more wonderful than the love of women. It's in verse 26 of chapter 1. Now, first of all, That is not a statement of homosexuality. And it's sad to even have to say that, but that is a verse that's used by those who would say, hey, look, something more going on there. Uh, There wasn't. It was a way to speak of the intimate way their souls were knit together in unity and love for one another in the closest kind of friendship. We could add this as well. David didn't do so great with marriage anyway. He had multiple wives and concubines, so it would be natural that he would find a closer companion in uh, a friend, a male, than he would a woman, because he had such a distorted view of marriage in a way that that worked out. But there it is. And we understand as the story of Jonathan unfolds, we learn what united their hearts together above all else was their shared love for and commitment to God, to God's purposes, to God's covenant promises to David. Jonathan, in that, honestly, in that relationship, Jonathan is the one who shows the most humility, because Jonathan is the one who naturally would have been. Uh, uh, pick to succeed his father Saul as king of Israel if anyone should have had jealousy if anyone should have had envy in their heart if anyone should have had selfish ambition it would have been Jonathan but he didn't he loved David he knew God had called David he rejoiced in the fact that he called David and he rejoiced in David himself and he was his greatest supporter and closest confidant and friend it was a dear sweet intimate fellowship Again, Paul knew this kind of relationship. We read it this morning in Philemon. You can't read through the epistles and Paul's not surrounded by companions and by friends. He's giving greetings from one friend to another, his own personal greetings, his own heart was given out in some of the most intimate relationships. Timothy is a prime example of that. He says in Philippians, just one example, when he sent uh, Timothy to the church at Philippi, it was like, sending his own heart. And he said he had no one else in verse 21 or verse 20, no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. No one else. But Timothy would, why? Because Timothy's heart was one with the apostle Paul. He was one with his concerns, one with his desires, one with his commitments. And they knew the most intimate kind of friendship. A friend it can be said then is bound by a common love, by common bonds and a friend. And we don't all find this in life, this kind of close friends, sometimes because we don't open ourselves up to it. But if God brings someone like that into your life, it is a gift of his providence. It is a gift of his providence. It's a part of our willingness, our openness to it. Listen to one who says this, and we're gonna look at the other side of this in just a sec, but let me give you this. It's a good statement. Uh, and this isn't... Uh, Mike, don't look for this quote. It's not in there. Uh, this one I just added. But it says, Fellowship in a general sense existed among all who were born of God. But that special delight which friends find in each other's company is something which goes beyond this. Fellowship is there because of the grace which is enjoyed in common. But friendships occur almost mysteriously and yet, and yet not without explanation. No doubt in heaven, when grace becomes glory, this imperfect state of our relationships will improve so that all will be equally the friend of each other. I think that's a true sentiment. There is a sort of mystery of providence that brings those into our lives at different times that become to us the most intimate kind of confidant, confidant the most infinite kind of, or intimate kind of friend and companion, and we should praise God for that. And who and when he brings and how, we don't know, but we should open ourselves always up to that kind of close and open and committed kind of relationships to one another that makes us able to receive that kind of relationship. There might be many friends that we could have had along the way that we don't, simply because we were never able to receive it. The cost was too much. It was too personal. It's important to note as well this, in thinking about the idea of friendship, friendship is this, that the truest friend then is the kind of friendship that encourages us to holiness. And this is an important point. The truest kind of friend, the one that we can have that kind of close companionship with is the one that makes us grow in our desire for holiness, our desire to be like the Lord. Proverbs 27 says this. Proverbs 27, verse 17 says... Iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. And that is the kind of heart of a Christian friendship. It is the kind of intimate nature and shared commitments that foster our love for the Lord and our closeness to one another. It's also the close, the closeness that we can have with a person uh, can also test that kind of commitment to the Lord and the nature of a true friendship, and whether it is one that we should, a relationship that we should be in. The reality is this, that the influence of friends can bring the greatest test of our truest commitments and of our faithfulness to the Lord. The reality is this, that sometimes, as much of a treasured gift as friendship is, we have to make a choice. We have to make a choice, and some know this, uh, Many of us can have our own stories of this, particularly when we first came to faith in Christ. Sometimes we have to choose between a friend or faithfulness to Christ. Uh, scripture speaks to this as well. And I want to give this as a contrast. We're not going to dwell here. But this does need to be said. In Deuteronomy 13, verse 6, i don't turn there, I'll read it to you. It says this, he's speaking, of course, to the covenant community of Israel. He's warning about being drawn away to other gods, to other kinds of worship. And he says this in verse 6. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend, and listen to how he describes this, who is as your own soul? The most intimate friendship. The, most, the closest kind of relationship. But he says, if... Your friend who is as your own soul entice you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known of the gods of the peoples who are around you or near you and so on. He "You, verse 8, you shall not yield to him or listen to him and your eyes shall not pity him nor shall you spare or conceal him but you shall surely kill him. Now that's pretty strong language. The point I simply want to bring out here is this. And we have to make these decisions sometimes, and this is particularly true, I would speak to the younger generation who might feel this more keenly than others because of the pressure, is we have to choose our friends wisely. The kind of friendship that he's talking about here is not friends who have in common evil and sinful designs, but the friendship that God commends is that which leads us to holiness, to maturity, to greater likeness to himself. And sometimes a friend will test that. And the greater part of wisdom then is the chew, the friends that we choose to spend with, time with. The good, bad company, 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three corrupts good morals. And so I would just lay that, and I, I would just put that out there. I want to, can't assume that everybody's just doing this perfectly. You think about your relationships. If any of you have friends... You have to ask yourself, is this friendship one that's leading me to greater holiness or is it tempting me to be more comfortable with sin? And sometimes those decisions are hard. But in contrast to this, and I leave that to you and the Lord, but in contrast to this, one is captured well what our goal is. It says this, he did, our best friends are those whose company, listen, makes us most afraid to sin. These friends are rare and to be valued like solid or above solid gold. Do our friendships make us afraid to sin? Do the friends that we're around make us more uncomfortable with unrighteousness or more comfortable with it? The friends that we should seek are those, and the friends that we should be developing within the community of God's people are those that should make us long for holiness. Many examples of this can be given. Let me give you one from church history, and I'm borrowing this account. Uh, Gregory Nazianzus, uh, one of the, well, Gregory Nazianzus, an early church father, uh, a leading fourth century Greek Christian theologian, could thus write of his friendship with Basil of Caesarea. So these were two giants in the early church theologically. But he says of them during their time together as students in Athens in the 350s, in studies, in lodgings, in discussions, I had him as a companion. We had all things in common. But above all it was God of course and a mutual desire for higher things that drew us to each other and as a result we reached such a pitch of confidence that we revealed reveled, revealed the depths of our hearts becoming ever more united in our yearnings our yearnings for Christ and their intimate love for one another that is a precious thing we should pray for a friend like that i do you should pray for a friend like that and praise God that he brings those in life. He wants to answer that prayer. Some of you maybe who are new to Christ need to pray that way, that God brings you that kind of friend. Some of us who are too uncomfortable with any kind of closeness or vulnerability need to pray that God will open us our hearts to have this kind of friend who will lead us and help us to pursue holiness. But if we expand it out from that, that is also... Here, what's, what he's getting at is the need of community, and we need to be reminded of this as well in the sense of not only one or a few who become close confidence, but what we share together in fellowship as the community of the church, as the body of Christ. When you're saved, and this is what I was hinting at at the beginning, we are engrafted into a body, into a community, into a community of God's people. We weren't saved to do it alone. We are a part of the body of believers. This is a part of what we will talk about, actually, in membership. It's why it becomes so important. We are too many Christians, and you may know some, you may be one, those of you I don't know very well yet, who float from church to church, never committing yourselves, who decide, I'll go to this one because I like the music, I'll go to this one because I like that series, I'll go to this one, or I'll go until I get uncomfortable with how exposed my life is being becoming to some or some that go hey i'll just skip church altogether you've met this and say i'll just do home church by myself i'll listen to my favorite pastor on tv and then tell everybody else why all the other churches i don't attend are so bad when we're left to ourselves it promotes pride one commenting on that kind of attitude said this person should take a ladder and climb up to heaven by themselves (laughs) i thought that was funny and true But it fits into the mentality that we have. And that is the idea that I can live the Christian life alone. Let me ask you, who knows about the struggles in your heart? Who knows you? Who knows about the sin that you struggle with? Who knows about your fears? Who knows about your worries? Who knows, who do you expose yourself to have that kind of relationship within the church? Or do you come and you're closed off and you come and you leave? Or do you try to genuinely engage in fellowship with other people? That will happen at different levels, of course. But the point is is that we're open up to that. That that's what we understand. We need. We need that. And to be out there on your own in the the foolishness that sin brings to us is sometimes seen as a, a mark of maturity and strength. I don't need anybody else. Look how strong I am. God would say, look how foolish you are look how weak you are, look how frightened you are to be able to make yourself vulnerable to someone else. We need each other to grow in Christ. We need each other to grow in Christ. He who isolates himself seeks his own purposes. So there is an importance to the Christian community. Uh, One old writer, going back quite a bit, but described it this way. It's, It's a good picture. It says, a live coal left, he said, a live coal left alone soos, soon loses its vital heat. But heat the coals around it, and we have a genuine, genial atmosphere. The most lively professor left alone is a danger of waxing cold and selfishness. But the precious community of the saints warms the Christian from the very center. Better to be a part of an imperfect church, he says later, not heretical, than to belong to none. We need the community of saints. We need spiritual friends the more we are with ourselves one said the more we become like ourselves think about that that stopped me for a bit the more we are with ourselves the more we become like ourselves it is only when we come back into the circle of your godly friends once again that we realize how awkward or else opinionated we have become as christians how much easier it is to wander off into sin how much easier it is to harbor those secret sins in our hearts that nobody else knows about a true friend is one who knows those places and will address them, and guess what? And love us still, and be committed to us still. That's a true friend. It says, I know all of your warts, I know all of the, the terrible things about you, and I love you still. Our hearts are still as one, and I'm committed to you as we would be to them. And of course, that then takes us, although there's much more to say, to what is the ultimate expression of this? And where does this lead us is to understand who is the one who knows us most intimately and loves us still? Who is the one who is the closest companion, the most perfect friend? If you're a Christian, that is Christ. That is Christ. And you know, that can sound trite, it can sound superficial, and it certainly could be taken that way, but I want you to grasp, hopefully, the profundity of that, of what that means to be a friend of God in Christ, to have Christ Christ. our friend i was in conversation not anybody this church uh but and it was someone struggling Uh, it was in a marriage uh, and they were struggling and one of the struggles was this deep sense of feeling alone of not being understood and the part of the counsel to that is that's life we live in a fallen world there's times we're not going to be understood there's going to be times when you are going to be alone. Loneliness is a part of a fallen creation. But what resource does a Christian have that in the midst of that, we have a friend who is closer than the brother? We have Christ. We have, in Christ, one we can go to, though no one else may understand, Christ knows. He understands. He is a friend, as I mentioned, who is closer than a brother, Proverbs 18.24. He is a friend who understands us perfectly better than we understand ourselves. John 21, 17, remember that Jesus was having the conversation with Peter, and finally Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know my heart. How many times have you gone to prayer with that attitude, Lord? I don't even know how to say it. Or nobody else understands what I'm going through. or Nobody else can understand what it is that I desire, but we can, with the Lord in fellowship, say, but Lord, you understand. You alone know That should provide us the greatest comfort that all the world could not understand, and yet we could find comfort that God, who is Lord of heaven and earth, understands. And he is working out his purpose in our life. He is a friend that is closer than a brother. He is a friend who understands us perfectly and knows our hearts and our desires and our sin. He is a friend who brings us into the most intimate counsel, John 14, 21. He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will just love him and disclose myself to him. And later he'll say, he and the Father will come and abide in, make their abode in, the one who knows them, who trusts them. He is a friend whose presence makes us more holy Romans 8.10, 8, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. He's the one who is both our sanctifier and whose presence makes us hate sin. He is the friend whose love for us is perfect, is sovereign, eternal, and redeeming, as the only, only the infinite love of our creator whose image we bear could alone bring to us, who died for our sins. Jesus says, the passage you're probably thinking of, greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do what I command you. That is if you embrace him in all of his person and his work and his glory, and that faith is demonstrated by an obedience to him. So we should have friends, and the foundation of all friendships is our friendship with Christ, and then that extends out interestingly we read it last week in third john to the community of god's people which are referred to in that passage as friends as friends and so don't go it alone don't be a lone ranger christian it doesn't work but let's be a people who learn to develop these kind of friendships who learn to develop these close kind of relationships who don't see community the corporate gathering as a place to show up hear a message and leave and say a few highs and so forth but learn to open ourselves up to this kind of genuine companionship and know that we need it by God's design. And with that, and yes, we did not get to verses 13 and 16, which is always annoying, but a common reality in my life. But let's do this. Let's take that and be reminded as we come to the Lord's table, as we come to this place where by his own design, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who is now physically, truly, really right now interceding for us at the right hand of the Father until by the Father's appointed time he returns to establish his kingdom on earth, to call his people to himself. That this Christ invites us to remember the fellowship that we have with him and one another through these elements. Uh, if you don't have these, raise your hand in George... Uh, Does everybody have these little... Okay, great. Good. I want to say this, though, uh, as we come, as we think about the idea of Christ's friendship. And as we remember what it cost him to bring us into this fellowship with himself... It's a lonely place to be, to be without someone else, to share our life and to share our troubles and our joys and our needs. And though Christ is the one who does that as a friend who is the closest friend that we can have, who's also our Lord, whom we serve, if you keep my commandments, you are my friends. But nonetheless, he brings us into this most intimate fellowship, and he can do that because he experienced abandonment and loneliness at the cross like none of us will ever know. Essentially, he experienced the pains that those who feel in hell feel, which is an abandonment of God, left only to themselves. He is the sinless son of God. They is bear, those bearing their guilt rightly. But he suffered that for us so that we would never have to do it, though we are guilty. He understood the loneliness of the cross. He understood the being misunderstood and rejected by a nation. Abandoned by his dearest friends, betrayed by one of his own, his father turning his face away. Why? So that he could experience it to the utmost, so that we could be brought into his own fellowship with the father. And the table reminds us of that. It reminds us that we were designed for communion with God, and that we have been brought into that kind of fellowship and communion through the cross. Sin brings a separation, but in Christ we are brought nearer. And that's what we remember. It is a celebration. We come and we examine our hearts, certainly. We do not want to come in an unworthy manner. But we come celebrating that those sins that are ours were laid on Christ so that we could be God's friend, so that we could be his children, so that we could have communion with him. And he receives all who come to him in repentant and humble faith like a child. And so let's remember that. Let me pray, and then we'll take these elements uh, together. Father, as we prepare to take the table, and our Lord, as we prepare to obey your command given to the disciples and remembered by your people through the ages, even to this day, this morning, right now, all the way up until you return, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to rejoice in the gospel and to rejoice in those words that though we were far off, you have brought us near through the blood of the cross. You brought us near to you, and in coming near to you, you've brought us near to one another. May we rejoice in these things for your glory.